In January, a fabulous book called Solved landed on my desk. It's written by Andrew Weir, who's the Director of Economic Development at the City of Melbourne, where he has responsibility for partnerships, city economy, and Melbourne as a smart city. Uh, Andrew's book ranges internationally and topically across a whole host of really important issues for where Australia goes in the future. He's drawn on his studies at Melbourne University, Monash University and Harvard University and proudly admits that public policy is my passion. I'd greatly been looking forward to sitting down with Andrew in person for a conversation about Solved at the Australian National University at the end of March. But then the coronavirus crisis hit and all of the in-person conversations at ANU were called off. So instead, we're turning to the beautiful world of Zoom and podcasting in order to bring this conversation to you. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I enjoyed Solved. So Andrew, welcome to our remote conversation about your fabulous book. Fantastic to be here, Andrew. Thank you for having me. You start off by making a, what I think is a, a fabulous observation. You say that you think most books about politics and policy are pretty depressing. And you drew inspiration instead from a different section of the book, bookstore. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, I guess looking at the politics section of the books, bookshop, I'm, I'm, I was struck one day by just how overwhelmingly focused on problems the books in that section were. They were... Um, there were books about climate change and racism and inequality, Donald Trump. Uh, it was extraordinarily depressing. There were very, very few that were actually solution-focused, yet just an aisle away in the uh, business section or the self-help section, they were full of books that were positive about our capacity to change, our capacity to uh, make our lives better if only we adopted the right strategies and the right mindset, then we could do it. And I thought... Well, I don't always uh, enjoy some of those uh, overwhelmingly uh, upbeat, upbeat books. I thought let's take a little bit of that spirit of the uh, of those of those sections and apply it to the um, apply it to the politics section. And, and, and wouldn't that be wouldn't that be good uh, as a way of making us feel a little bit better about the possibilities that that were um, inherent in public policy? Because I'd seen around the world that that there were amazing results being achieved, and I thought let's. Let's explore that a little bit more. Let's write the book that I would like to read. Well, your book could easily be titled 10 Habits of Successful Countries. Uh, you've got <laughs> 10 uh, examples of, uh, of uh, critical issues uh, ranging from uh, uh, inequality to urban renewal. Uh, and you've picked out for each of these problems a country that you think we can learn from. Uh, in some cases, you pick the country because they're the gold medalist. And in other cases, you've picked them because they're the most improved. Uh, I thought maybe we might start with South Korea and what we can learn from South Korea about healthcare. You have this amazing statistic that their life expectancy has gone up 30 years since 1960, from 53 in 1960 to 83 today. How do they do it? Yeah, and and they're well on the way to having life expectancy of 90 as well. So very soon they'll have the longest life expectancy in the world. You know, and I think. The take-home messages out of that, you know, in a way, aren't all that groundbreaking. They're they're obviously at the early stages of development. It was focused on some of the fundamentals of sanitation, uh, vaccination, uh, improving diets, uh, uh, nutrition, etc. 
um, in the latter in the latter stages uh, of development, when we're seeing uh, Korea become one of the wealthier countries of the OECD, uh, the interesting thing about South Korea, I think, is they now have one of the world's best healthcare systems with universal healthcare. Three of the top ten hospitals in the world are in Seoul. Um, amazing technology. If you get sick anywhere in the world, um, Korea is not a bad place to do it. But coupled with that, they also have managed to largely hang on to a traditional diet, um, high in vegetables, uh, low in saturated fats and sugars. And that combination of a traditional diet with first-class healthcare uh, has really enabled them to leapfrog countries like like the United States, where where although they might have a... uh, some great healthcare in, uh, albeit not applied universally, uh, their life care life expectancy has gone backwards because uh, because of largely preventable diseases such as driven by obesity and and poor diets, and so Korea has managed to avoid that trap so far. You talk about this as the kimchi diet, uh, where you admit that actually kimchi itself isn't particularly healthy, but uh, the things it goes with seem to be pretty good for you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think it would have been nice to be able to write the headline that kimchi was the superfood that that changed um, changed everything. But I think uh, and but I think actually it is actually the traditional diet that that accompanies kimchi. If people are eating kimchi, it's highly likely that they're eating a diet rich in you know in vegetables and, um, and rice, uh, and with relatively little saturated fats. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting story and there's, and there's something in that for us. I think that for a country like Australia, where we do have really good, uh, healthcare and we've got, we've done a great job on life expectancy We're we're not the best in the world, but we're certainly up there. Uh, we can, I think we, the note of caution is that we don't throw it all away with, uh, with, non-communicable diseases and the rise of um, of uh, cardiovascular disease and so heart attacks and and stroke etc through caused by obesity and diabetes and that and, and the real risk is that unless we do focus on those diet lifestyle and other preventable um, and other aspects of uh, preventing chronic disease then uh, then we do risk undermining all the good work that we've otherwise seen you wrote your book uh, well before coronavirus uh, had emerged, but is there something you think that South Korea can uh, can teach other countries? I mean, they, they seem to have uh, flattened the curve uh, be- better than uh, than most nations. Uh, in that sense, your book uh, holds up remarkably well to uh, to perhaps one of the first tests of its uh, it, its theories. Yeah, I think there's a few things we can learn from South Korea and. Albeit, I think it's still very, very early days in the coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, and it's it's got a long way to play. So um, this conversation may not age well, Andrew. But um, but for what it is, the I think Korea is interesting because they have um, obviously a universal healthcare system. They have extraordinarily good hospitals, um, but also they have three times as many hospital beds per capita as Australia four times as many as a country like Italy. Uh, so there's, I think, a degree of latent capability in their hospital system. Also, the willingness to use technology and, and technology as a desirable characteristic of not just of their healthcare system, but of but of their society more generally. Korea is regarded fairly consistently as one of the countries that's uh, most amenable to uptake of, of new technology. I think that's that's shown through in their in their 
ability to respond and pivot rapidly uh, using new diagnostic tests um, and to roll out using using technology, uh, contact tracing, etc. So, yeah, it's very early days, but I think the, the fundamentals that Korea has in place um, have enabled them to do well so far. Another example you have in the book, another chapter uh, looks at what we can learn from Iceland about gender equality. And in this, you have this fabulous uh, fact, which I'd never heard of before, that in the mid-1800s, Iceland attempted to give women the vote, but because they were under the uh, thumb of the Danish crown, uh, it was uh, was nixed. And so uh, South Australia got in first uh, with uh, that aspect of gender equity. Mm. Uh, But you you say that these days, uh, Iceland does well on a whole range of gender equity measures, including the extent to which they've closed the gender pay gap, uh, women's representation in, in parliament. Um, what is it that's, uh, that's managed to, uh, to, to bring about that greater degree of gender parity in Iceland? Yeah, I think, obviously, Iceland's a very small country. There's only, I think, 300,000 people in the whole country, which so not directly comparable to, to larger countries. But I think some of the lessons are, are there. One is that gender equality was driven by large social movements. It didn't come about of its own accord. Uh, so in the mid 1970s, we have 90% of Icelandic women on strike, either in the workplace or at home, uh, marching in the streets, etc., demanding change. Um, and they've done that regularly since. Uh, we've seen women in parliament uh, as either as prime minister or as, pre- or as president leading the country uh, for I think roughly two thirds of uh, the last 30 years. Uh, and, and, what, what Iceland has really worked out is that if you want to achieve gender equality, you need to achieve it through legislation. It won't happen of its own accord. And, and critically, if you want to achieve gender equality in the workplace, you also need to work hard towards gender equality in the home. And so Iceland has enacted, mm. Iceland has enacted a whole series of measures that have um, really tackled gender equality in both the workplace and the home. And, and so, for example, paid paternity leave for fathers. Iceland, uh, as of 1st of January this year, actually now has 12 months of paid parental leave, five months of which is for use exclusively by the mother and five months exclusively on a use it or lose it basis by the father, um, fully paid. And we see on average uh, 90% of all Icelandic fathers taking three months of leave after the birth of each child, and and the sort of phenomenal transformation that ha- that has in society is quite incredible. It sees women return to work faster. It sees gender roles change in the home, uh, and I think that insight that you need to tackle gender equality in the home in order to achieve gender equality in the workforce, I think, is quite um, quite an important one. I think. Yeah, this uh, notion of daddy months, as they're called, has uh, become quite common in a range of Scandinavian countries. I think Germany has it as well. Mm. Uh, And it it is striking to see studies which look at the ongoing effect of uh, of that policy on equality of uh, child-rearing duties, even when the children are are, are at school aged. Uh, You talk about also the uh, extent to which Iceland heavily subsidises childcare, um, which which led me to uh, to think not only about Iceland but also about how the changes we're putting in place in Australia right now to the cost of childcare uh, might affect norms in Australia. I mean, do you think Australians are going to be able to give up 
cheaper childcare when the coronavirus virus crisis has passed? Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I think that's the um, I think the exciting potential of this pandemic is I think Arundhati Roy in the Financial Times not long ago wrote about the pandemic as a portal uh, and I think mm. a portal to a, a different future and I think the, the the pandemic the coronavirus pandemic is opening up all sorts of new possibilities for change that we hadn't really thought possible in, in a country like Australia um, and it, what it, I think what it shows is that the power of good policy ideas can prevail. It may take a while. It may take um, those ideas remaining in the bottom drawer until their time is ripe. But I think we've seen ideas like free childcare and uh, yeah, and support and support for increased uh, increased payments of welfare welfare and um, and redistributive payments uh, come through. I think those sorts of things. Um, are made possible by this pandemic. And I think whilst they may not remain intact forever, I think they'll definitely be changing the conversation. Andrew, I'm interested in what you think. I think, uh, I think people are fairly, um, fairly sticky in their desires. And so uh, one of the things that public policy has taught us is that it is uh, harder to take things away than it is to give them in the first place. Mm. Um, I think back to the uh, period under the Howard government uh, when they were trying to recover overpaid childcare subsidies at the end of the year. Uh, so rational economists would say people should be delighted at being overpaid. It's an interest-free loan from the government. Uh, you, should, uh, you should be pleased to have gotten extra and then have to pay it, even if you have to pay it back at the end of the year. Uh, but that certainly wasn't the way most, uh, most people saw it. That rational economic model didn't work. The Howard government discovered very quickly that once you had given people money that they expected to be able yep. to keep it. Uh, and I think some of the same dynamic may well play into uh, changes at the end of this period, um, although the, uh, the, the, the fiscal pressures are going to be greater than we've ever seen before. Yeah. So I, I just reflecting a little bit further on that, I think because it's a really interesting moment that we're currently experiencing. And I think what, what this interesting period has shown is that if we can find a hundred plus billion to tackle climate to, to tackle uh, coronavirus at really relatively short notice we've demonstrated that government can do it if it if it wants to has the will then the question for me is if it can do it for coronavirus why can't it also do it for climate change and other big challenges the world's facing um, and the arguments that uh, it's uh, not fiscally responsible or it can't be done, the money can't be found. I wonder whether they're going to wash in future. Well, let's, let's dive straight into climate change. Uh, I was going to leave it to later, but uh, you, you, talk, you have a chapter there about what we can learn from Denmark about climate change. And you point out that by 2030, Denmark's electricity will be sourced entirely from renewables. What are the lessons from how Denmark has uh, gone about making that transition? Yeah, well, Denmark's had a long history in this space. It dates back to the 1970s and the oil crisis. And that oil crisis, um, when OPEC banded together to raise the price of oil, um, was a real fork in the road for some countries. Uh, a lot of countries were dependent on oil. And D Denmark decided that they didn't want to be dependent on oil. And so they would tax 
um, tax, ener tax uh, energy to reduce uh, the use of energy and therefore to reduce reliance on imported oil. At the same time, the United States decided they too didn't want to be dependent on imported oil. So they went down the path of, of uh, doubling down on, on alternative sources such as coal and expanding coal-fired power stations. So while Denmark went down the path of in taxing energy and reinvesting it into renewable sources of power such as wind, the United States went the other way and invested into coal. And I think that... That 30-year history or 40-year history is um, 50 even. <laughs> My maths might be wrong there. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it goes back a long way. And it's been consistent, sustained investment in renewable, in renewable energy that have enabled Denmark to be where they are now. So I think in uh, 20, 2019, from memory, they generated 47% of their power from, um, from renewable electricity. And they're well on track to be generating 100%. And this is at the same time as Denmark has substantially grown its economy, um, roughly the average of the European Union. Um, it is Denmark has consistently demonstrated that you can grow your economy at the same time as as de uh, decoupling that growth from uh, from energy consumption and decoupling it from carbon emissions. Denmark's shown us that it is possible. And if it's possible for a country like Denmark, and it should also be possible for a country like Australia. They don't just host, host the Copenhagen climate change talks, they actually uh, walk the walk. And, and what I enjoyed about the chapter too was just that sense of um, positivity that you talk about in, in, in the opening to the book. Uh, that sense that, uh, that in Denmark, this is a job creator rather than a job destroyer. Yeah, absolutely. It's... Um Climate change is, and, and response to climate change has bipartisan support. Uh, it has the support of the business community. It is regarded as something that is about creating a better future for the country. Uh, and in, and by all accounts, it is. It is exact, doing exactly that. Um, and the, the, the country's doing well. Uh, its economy is growing in concert at the, in, at the same time as emissions are reducing. Uh, and certainly... When that last coal-fired power station closes down in you know this side of 2030, uh, Denmark will be generating all its electricity from renewable electric, renewable sources, and uh, that's quite a milestone, I think. You had to have a chapter on America, and for America, you've picked uh, urban renewal um, with, uh, I'd say, urban renewal plus innovation is sort of where that uh, that that chapter takes us. Mm. You've got a really interesting observation there, Andrew, about. Uh, the growth of mid-tier cities, uh, mm. and you mentioned Pittsburgh, Chattanooga, uh, Salt Lake City, and Phoenix. Now, what, it is, what, is, it, what is it that uh, has led to those cities doing well in America? And uh, uh, what could cities in Australia whose names are not Sydney or Melbourne learn from it? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. Obviously, as far as global cities go and cities that are driving innovation around the world the big names are there you, you see you see there's san francisco and the and silicon valley new york boston uh and then increasingly other cities such as uh los angeles or or um seattle and co but uh, but i think there's a whole range of mid-tier cities and what they've what they've observed is that they've been particularly able to galvanize around their universities um, and a lot of those smaller cities have genuinely world-class centers of expertise in, in the, from their universities. And they may not be 
ex, you know, world leaders in every domain, but there'll be some particular niche in which their universities are, the, are among the world best. And they're able to leverage that into a cluster of activity coupled with lower real estate costs, uh, uh, the amenity of a mid-tier city and to create a really fertile environment for business and academia to cluster together in a sort of right-sized agglomeration effect so to enable uh, innovation and, and, and economic activity to really cluster around specializing in, in type in activity that is amongst the, uh, that, that is amongst the world's best. And that model of actually, for cities in Australia or anywhere around the world of of working with the universities in a particular precinct and it walk has to be it really should be walkable uh, and urban ideally and and asking mm. and asking what are the domains in which we can be among the world's best and it certainly won't be everything and it requires uh, really a really robust conversation and a fact finding machine it's not easy work to do but um uh, but once you've worked that out, then you can really double down and, and attract um, and grow uh, grow companies that work with those universities and other and other research platforms in that area to um, to really develop a center of expertise. Yeah, focusing on your comparative advantage, I think, is a really key insight out of, out of that. Uh, and I'm I'm often struck in the U.S. by these specific niches that uh, the remaining Midwest manufacturers have uh, have carved out uh, of things that they do that they're better at than anyone in the world. And it might be making molds for a particular kind of industrial piston, but uh, but they're able to get it right to within the micron. Yeah, and I uh, think one other insight just out of the U.S., if I may, Andrew, um, is the sources of capital. Are really important. What one of the insights mm-hmm. that they they uh, they had really was that although most of the venture capital funds are based on the east coast and the west coast, and that's where most of the money is being spent, the sources of funds is actually coming from a lot of those other mid tier states, from high net worth individuals, from from family offices, from philanthropic organisations, from pension funds that are actually based in some of those other cities. And what those cities realise, if actually they could create the right environment, the right investment products, that the capital that came from those cities could actually be redeployed back into those cities instead of heading over to Silicon Valley or, or to Boston or New York. And I think that insight is really quite important for Australia. We have enormous enormous reserves of capital in the form of our superannuation funds in Australia, um, most of which they invest far more in venture capital in the United States than they invest in venture capital in Australia. And and the prospect of redeploying some Australian capital um, back into the innovation sector in Australia, I think, um, is something we could all be we could all be thinking about how we can do more effectively. Yes, I mean it is uh, hard to replicate the sheer depth of venture capital investment and size of market that uh, makes the US so promising for entrepreneurs. Um, the, the access to capital will, will never be as good here as it is there. And having 300 million people within a, a domestic shipping market uh, is, is, I think, pretty important to startups. Um, but there's, there's things, where, things we, can, we can learn. And uh, for me too, I think about how to make sure that the rate of return on venture capital is higher. Um, VC returns underperformed the stock market for most of the past decade. Indeed, so, yeah. 
uh, you know, there's a there's a supply and a demand piece to, to that, I, I reckon. I, indeed, I was going to ask yeah. you more broadly, did, did you do a lot of travel in researching the book? I know you, you speak French and German. Did you, uh, did you go to, to many of these countries? Did you get on the phone? How did you go about doing the research that yeah, together? There was actually not a lot of travel. Obviously, um, I mean, most of my conversations were done via Skype, just not, not unlike this one. Um, and it involved actually a lot of cold calling and approaches to experts from around the world. Um, I, I would have liked to have... Uh, travel to most of the countries that I visited but it's, it is actually quite amazing what you can learn through a bit of proactivity and reaching out to people people are incredibly willing to to help and to want to make a contribution and to tell the stories of their cities and their countries and so um, I found that an incredibly fascinating journey of discovery because of most of these stories I didn't know before I started out um, writing it and uh, it's when you really when in a lot of cases for me, it was literally look at the OECD or the World Bank data or the um, and see which countries are performing the best and then go and drill down and dig, dig a little bit deeper into us to finding out what those countries are doing and then identifying some people that I might like to talk to and then sending them an email and asking them to speak with them. And, and, the, rest, and the rest is uh, the book, I think. But it's, um, yeah, you can do a lot through, uh, through Skype and I think uh, maybe that, Maybe that insight stands me in good stead for this epidemic. I don't know. Indeed. Well, you've got a lot of stories in the book, and I think that's one of the things that uh, that I enjoyed and kept it moving along. Uh, you've also got a bunch of uh, pretty provocative statistics. Um, when you talk about what we can learn from Singapore about education, uh, you point out to us that the typical Australian 18-year-old knows as much maths as the typical 15-year-old in Singapore. Uh, what is it that's meant that Singapore has done so well on uh, on its education system, uh, as measured by these these international tests? Yeah, Singapore is a really interesting example because, in a lot of ways, it partly this partly the answer to your question is cultural, and partly the answer to pan, answer rela- relies on on policy, and I think the two interrelate inter- intersect with each other. Um, Singapore. The bedrock of Singapore is an inherent is an inherent belief in meritocracy. That so ninety eight point five percent of students in Singapore go to government schools. The only the residual are expats who go to um, expat schools, but um, they go, they all go to government schools and they're streamed into classes from a relatively early age um, based on what are relatively high stakes exams. and And the belief is that regardless of whether you come from Indian, Chinese. Or Malay heritage, um, everyone should have an equal chance to succeed um, based on a meritocracy. And it's a high-pressure environment that really sits uneasily with a lot of Australians. But I reflected on that over a period of time writing this book, and then, and then I realised, well, actually, we subject our students to numerous high-stakes high, high exams for selective entry high schools or or private school scholarship examinations. And in fact, rather than streaming our students based on academic ability in a lot of instances, we stream our students based on the ability of their parents to afford private school fees in a lot of instances. And and perhaps a meritocracy was a better solution, if, if imperfect, in a lot of ways. Um, but in that meritocracy, Singapore invests 
invests massively in its teachers. The teachers are at the heart, and this is where a lesson, a lesson that is inherently transferable for a country like Australia. It selects its teachers from amongst the best high school graduates. It then invests hugely in the education of those of those students. They are employed as civil servants from the moment they start their teacher training, with all of the leave and uh, and pay that that that, that affords. Uh, every year, Singaporean teachers are supported with a hundred hours of funded learning and development. They tra- they travel the world. They do leadership courses. They do all sorts of things to support their learning and development. And then. Singaporean teachers are also supported to stay in the classroom if they're high performing. They can grow and develop their careers um, without having necessarily to go on to the um, principal class of teaching. They can they can they can grow into become a um, uh, a curriculum leader or a uh, a master teacher and teaching other other teaching and developing other teachers. And I think. Some of those insights are really important for for a country like Australia um, about how we support and grow and invest in our teachers. Yeah, I certainly find at the moment, like uh, suspect many parents, that there's nothing like homeschooling to give you an additional appreciation for the wonderful work that teachers do. Uh, and one of the things you note is is the way in which Singapore recognises the value of of teachers uh, in uh, require, allowing them time to prepare, perhaps taking away some of the sort of administrative uh, uh, tasks that they might do in other countries and, and providing those those really clear long-term pathways. Mm. So if you want to uh, earn a higher salary, you can stay in the classroom. Yeah, that's right. And Singaporean teachers work extraordinarily hard. I think um, you might have it in front of you, but I think it's about 45 hours a week um, the average Singaporean teacher works, more than the average Australian teacher. hours, I think you said. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but, they work, but, but they spend fewer hours a week in front of the classroom uh, teaching the students. So they're, they're spending more time being able to prepare, invest in their learning and development and, and do all the things that enable them to... Uh, to really get on top of their teaching. And I think that's that's an important insight too. Coupled with the fact that so the Singaporean government is elected not to go down the path of spending scarce education dollars trying to markedly reduce class sizes. Um, and that's been a um, an interesting one. They've concluded, and I think the Australian evidence uh, reaches a similar conclusion, which is that the evidence for reduced class sizes in and of itself um, is mixed, um, is certainly not uh, the, the easy way to better outcomes. And Singaporean, Singaporean um, t- educators and, and, um, and government leaders have elected to invest their money elsewhere. And I think there's, there's something in that for us as well. Uh, one of the uh, surprises to me in the book was where you talk about uh, one country which clearly is not top of the OECD for uh, top of the world for uh, for its performance, but has improved significantly. Uh, you talk in the chapter about democracy, uh, about Indonesia uh, and its uh, transition from dictatorship to democracy. What is it you think Australia can learn from Indonesia in uh, in institutionally? Uh, bolstering the, the strength of our democracy. Yeah, look, 
it's a really it was a really challenging chapter that one in a lot of ways to write and and in a lot of ways it's a it, yes it's a story of in, India's of Indonesia's remarkable transformation but I think more to the point it's a story about the fragility and importance of democracy and and the fact that we need to constantly work at sustaining it and we can never take it for granted Indonesia's transformation has been remarkable um, and I think in recent years, um, many Indonesian scholars would argue that Indonesia has taken a few steps backwards uh, and they've got some concerns for the future of Indonesia's democracy. I don't quibble with that. Um, but when you take a long view and you, you, you stand back and you look back to 1998 and the fall of Suharto and the, and the journey of where Singapore, of where, <laughs> I'm getting my countries wrong, of where Indonesia has come from, uh, it is really quite remarkable. You've gone from one of the worst dictatorships in the world to what is uh, an imperfect democracy, but a democracy nonetheless in, in Indonesia, a country that's remarkable. It's got a um, couple of hundred uh, million people living there across 17,000 islands, um, many different religions. Uh, it's uh, it's largely Muslim country. It's enormous challenges, but it's been able to sustain that democratic transition for, for 20 years, which is quite a remarkable feat. Not many countries have been managed, have, have managed to topple a dictatorship and sustain a democracy. And and all the scholarly evidence seems to suggest that if you can sustain a democracy for 20 years, you're, you're highly likely to sustain it um, on an ongoing basis. Interestingly for me, though, Indonesia's got some institutions that have been able to support it. And in some some cases, they've got institutions that Australia doesn't have. So, for example, Indonesia's got a corruption eradication commission with widespread powers, albeit some of them are, those are being wound back as we speak. But they've but that institution has been in place for many years, and it's had been able to investigate politicians. It's been able to in, uh, operate independent of the bureaucracy independent of the politicians to investigate corruption wherever it can be found. Um, and that's an institution that Australia doesn't have, or certainly at a federal level. And I found that quite inspiring um, that there's, you know, a country like Australia can still, can still learn from other countries. But really one of the main lessons in that is in, in the story of Indonesia is it's often two steps forward, one step back, two steps forwards, two steps back. Um, and in many countries around the world, we've seen democratic regression, and that, and that includes in many of the developed countries. And we have to be ever vigilant to make sure that democracy is sustained. And I think um, that is a lesson for all the countries of the world, Australia included. And you talk too about the uh, the importance of ensuring that there is a right to peaceful protest, and uh, and how that's something that's uh, that's common to many countries, including Australia where we don't have it constitutionally protected. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, uh, absolutely. You, uh, you, you talk about uh, uh, Britain and their experience on reducing crime. And, and another of the, uh, the figures that startled me from the book was the fact that Britain now has the lowest homicide rate uh, in the OECD, uh, a group of advanced countries. Uh, I also had always thought that the notion of British bobbies not carrying a gun was a, a sort of relic of the past, and at some stage they'd started to carry guns. But but you say that, that still today most British police officers on the street just have mace and a taser. Uh, how, does, how does that uh, 
reduce crime. So 95% of police don't carry a firearm in in the UK. Um, it's quite phenomenal, really. Yeah, it is quite extraordinary. And it's actually a conscious decision of police command is to put vulnerable police in communities because uh, it's, it's done deliberately because in the UK, the view is that the authority of the police comes about through the consent of the community. It doesn't come about through through um, force imp- imposed by the state. So you don't go in all guns blazing in, in um, insisting that your superior firepower is going to subdue a, a ruly a community. Police go in there and earn the trust of, uh, of the communities they work with. And that trust is absolutely fundamental to being able to work to prevent crime and to um, and to solve crime. And tr- trust um, is absolutely fundamental when it comes to crime. And and one of the examples in the in the book refers to some academic work that's shown that in the aftermath in the U.S., for example, of po- police um, beatings and police brutality the propensity of communities um, to report crime to police um, diminished. Um, mm. and, and yet at the same time, crime went up. And that's because if police aren't, if, if communities aren't trusting the police to deal with their crime fairly, um, then they won't report it and they'll deal with crime in other ways. And that may, may involve taking things into their own hands. And so trust is a really integral part to, to um, preventing crime in the first place. You move moving across to uh, continental Europe. Uh, you uh, bring out the success of Germany in sustaining a manufacturing sector. Uh, you point out that while many countries, Australia included, have seen a, a significant fall in the share of the workforce employed in manufacturing, that's uh, uh, it's been constant in Germany at about uh, a, a quarter uh, right through from the, the mid nineteen nineties. What is the Germany has done to sustain a, a strong manufacturing sector, and, and and why is that important? Yeah, um, Germany has been incredibly successful at sustaining its manufacturing sector as a share of its economy, which means, obviously, with the economy growing, it's been growing in absolute terms. Um, I think at the heart of it, Germany can t- manufactures products that people want to buy. Uh, so what it's done, it's its companies particularly as we alluded to earlier with the the US examples you gave, companies are really focusing on niche products in which they can be the best in the world. So that if you want to buy the best product in the world, it's highly likely to come from a German manufacturer. And so we've seen even even as we've seen the growth of manufacturing in China, Chinese, Chinese, uh, China is now importing more products from Germany than than it is exporting back to Germany. Um, And that's because... If a German, if a Chinese company wants to set up a production line, it's highly likely that it's designing uh, that it's purchasing its production systems from a, a German company. Um, Chinese middle class consumers still prefer to buy a, a German manufactured car to a Chinese one, for example, because of quality. Um, and uh, that focus on quality and of being the best in the world has been really at the, at the heart of everything Germany Germany's done. Some of the other things I think is. This notion of, um, and it's really interesting in a time as we're going through quite an economic economic challenge in a, in around the world and in Australia, but the notion of 
a whole cohort of companies in Germany that are privately owned, family owned companies that have been owned for many generations that focus much more on longevity, connection to their local community, support for their workers. Um, so they, they focus on profit-oriented growth rather than using substantial debt or equity equity finance to grow their businesses. And so what that means, they might, might grow, grow relatively slowly, but when it comes to uh, dealing um, with challenges such as we're facing at the moment, they're much better equipped to survive, um, survive many of the, the challenges that a downturn brings. And many of these are what you call the, the or what they call the middle stand companies. That's right. That sort of uh, uh, middle estate or, or middle class ca- companies. Uh, you refer too to the uh, way in which employee engagement seems to make a difference in Germany. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, that's right. Um, a lot of these middle stand companies are located in small towns owned by private by families who also live in the same town as their workers are employed employed in um, and so good relationships with their with their workers is at the heart of what those companies do but interestingly too across Germany there's a there's a, an approach to corporate governance that that is would seem quite strange in Australia um, where the governing boards of the company are required by law to involve worker representatives on them. So for a large company listed on a stock exchange with more than 2,000 employees, they need to have half of their board uh, made up of worker representatives. Uh, and those, those um, you know, that would be the equivalent of the CFMMEU having a making up half of the board of BHP, for example. It's a, it's quite an interesting sort of phenomenon that means that when decisions are being made at the board level, the interests of the workers are taken into account just as much as the interests of the shareholders. And so a lot of German companies are governed, uh, governed with multiple interests um, being taken into mind. It's not just not just only about the interests of the shareholders. It's about the interests of all the stakeholders of the company. It's called uh, that's that stakeholder economy rather than a shareholder economy. And that uh, that approach um, means that uh, the the gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid is 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 not as great. That workers uh, are not always the first ones to be um, disposed of when when the going gets tough. Um, and, and, and that's at the heart of the German approach. You uh, have a chapter about uh, Australia and our success with multiculturalism, which I, I'm, I'm not going to go into to, uh, in, in this conversation in the interest of time. Uh, so let's conclude on uh, uh, Norway and equitable growth. Uh, you, uh, you point out that Norway's sovereign wealth fund is now worth uh, over a trillion US dollars. Uh, and that uh, trend, they have a, a radical degree of transparency in terms of people knowing what their neighbours earn. Since 2014, uh, all taxable earnings of every individual has been available on the internet. Um, uh, talk about some of these factors and how they've uh, led to less inequality uh, but still solid growth in Norway. Yeah, yeah. I think the heart of the Norwegian approach has been 
one of inclusion. So the the, the member bearing in mind that there are really three principal ways of growing the economy: that's productivity, um, population, and uh, participation. And the focus on participation has been really a, a central, important part of the Norwegian economy. They want everyone to participate in the labor market, uh, which means they can uh, pay tax and be able to participate as citizens. And that means uh, trying to get everyone, whether they've got a disability or uh, they're um, an immigrant or, or, uh, or women returning from the workforce after having children, returning to the workforce after having children, that focus on inclusiveness uh, has been central to the story of Norwegian success. And that gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid uh, is is also part of that because it means uh, that everyone is valued, has an inherent value as a human being um, is, is sort of the, the story that many, many Norwegians told me. And, and you see that with very high wage floors that have been agreed through collective bargaining so that someone who is working in hospitality or in, in cleaning, for example, uh, might be earning $30 an hour uh, and can have a respectable living because those jobs are just as important as, as someone working in banking or, or whatever. But it's um, everyone has an inherent value. And as you say, they're more likely to be on a permanent contract as well. Yeah, that's right. And and the, the focus on permanent work is really at the heart of it. The, the labor law in, in Norway does not allow companies to really... Um, uh, overly rely on temporary work or casual work um, and it gives everyone a sense of security um, in terms of going about their business and and that at the same time and I'm not sure if there's a correlation but there's the trust is another theme and um, running through the Norwegian Norwegian um, approach and that sense of um, which is goes to the, goes to why tax returns are readily available. Uh, the, the the feeling that there's a bit of a collective mindset, I think. Um, but trust is one of those themes that runs through almost every chapter that I looked at, and I think um, trust is one of those elusive things that uh, that I think you know it when you lose it. <laughs> but it's very hard to to earn and grow and. Um, and I think trust relies on a consistency of policy. It relies on transparency, uh, and it relies on um, integrity. And and as uh, governments, as as leaders, as um, uh, we all need to be to be bearing that in mind that trust is such an integral, valuable uh, thing that is so fragile. It's hard to earn and easy to easy to give away. So. Um, whether that be in crime, whether that be in uh, in in a country like Norway, whether whether that be in democracy, trust trust really plays such an important role. Andrew, there's a striking lack of ideology in the uh, in the book, uh, reflected perhaps in the fact that uh, among your endorsers in the uh, the opening page. Uh, Joe Hildebrand and Van Badem. <laughs> uh, how do you think about? policy problems uh, do you prefer to put aside ideological lenses do you think sometimes the uh, partisan divide can be a hindrance to good policy development yeah look i think so i think for me that i think like it like everyone involved in policy the thing that really matters is the outcome um how do we achieve 
better outcomes, whether it be reducing carbon emissions or improving healthcare and life expectancy or education. Those the outcomes are the things that matter. And outcomes are informed by interventions and and that can be uh, studied and investigated and uh, empirically tested. And I think uh, what I've tried to do in this book is to really ask the question, which which countries, which jurisdictions are achieving the best outcomes? What are they, and then and then what are they doing to achieve those outcomes? And I think that methodology um, and a, a real empirical focus is quite different to an ideological focus. I think, which is built on a series of assumptions of the way way some things are always better than some approaches are always better than other approaches. Um, in the end. I want to I want to see policy interventions deployed that actually work to achieve better outcomes, and and I think there's some themes that come through there. Um, but in the end, I think we should also always be testing ourselves and asking ourselves: Is what we thought the, was the case actually true empirically? Does it actually work that way? And and I think your your focus that you've deployed through much of your work, Andrew, with um, randomised control trials and an empirical basis for it, for economics, I think um, I think I um, wholeheartedly endorse in terms of an approach. And I think uh, it's also a way of building a coalition of support. If you can just take the ideology mm. and the assumptions out of it, you're far more likely to bring people along with you. I think. Yes, there's a, there's a range of issues I find in politics where. Uh, the major parties disagree on where we're aiming to go. Uh, and then there's a host of other issues where there's agreement on where we want to go, but disagreement on how to get there. Uh, and that seems to be where a kind of what works philosophy, which you espouse in the book, uh, it could be uh, it could be ideal. Yeah. But I think what the interesting for me, though, writing this book, and I agree that the, the ideological debates really should be on what are the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. You know, and that's where the debate, the ideological debate, should be. What? Let's disagree about the outcomes. But what I found in writing the book is that many of the the dichotomies or the or the um, the big ideological debates that ran through much of my um, education years, you know, they're actually false in a lot of ways. You know, the I remember growing up with the the big debate around. Should we grow the pie or divide the pie more equally? And we had to choose between between distribution and growth. And and actually, when you look at the evidence and all of the work coming out of the big main economic global economic bodies like the IMF and the OECD and the World Bank, everyone is now saying that reducing inequality actually leads to faster economic growth. And so um, that focus you can almost, you can can actually have both outcomes now and and I think to argue otherwise is a little bit disingenuous same goes with climate change and, and economic growth I think the evidence increasingly um, is now pointing to carbon abatement as being a source of economic growth rather than a cost and you look at just need to look at Roscano's recent work in that area for Australia um, and so a lot of those ideological um, Divides are, I think, are breaking down when you actually interrogate them a little bit closer, more closely. Well, the book is a tour de force through what uh, 10 countries are doing and how Australia can learn from it. Its title is Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too, published by Black Ink 
just hot on the bookshelves and I'd highly recommend you pick up a copy. Andrew, thanks so much for the conversation today. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it.